You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists, long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. That includes not just this podcast, but also the Savage Wonder Literary Blog, our Write Loud events on Instagram Live, of course, now our 2022 Vet Rep staged reading season. So come on out to the parlor in beautiful Cornwall, New York, and see our intimate, awesome, fully wallpapered performance space. Seats are incredibly limited, but almost on every Saturday from April 2nd until mid-December, we will have staged readings going on of established plays in an intimate fun, lively setting. And then, of course, I'm not even mentioning the Savage Wonder Festival of Veterans in the Arts, May 29th, 2022. It's a Sunday. It's the day before Memorial Day at Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center in beautiful upstate Chester, New York, featuring close to 40 veterans in the arts, professional artists who also happen to be veterans, live bands, theater, film, dance, artists, poets, it will be a cornucopia of talent and all of them veterans. So pretty damn cool. Go check it out. All of our lines of efforts can be found at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And for the Savage Wonder Festival specifically, you can find a way to link to it through vetrep.org, but probably the easiest way to find out everything about the festival is to go to savagewonder.com, all one word, savagewonder.com, savagewonder.com. Step into the Abyss by Benjamin Fortier from his book, Stones of the Wooded Valley. This jagged, gaping wound will bleed forevermore. Your life force torn from this dimension of flesh, intolerable anguish and torment racked your vulnerable soul and the thick black smoke which crept from the depths lurched up your throat and choked you from the inside, insisting that the only way to deliver yourself from this agony is to awaken from the dream and prematurely force the end of your existence, to shut your eyes and embrace the night and step off into the abyss. You did not know we would carry on the grief in which you compounded, tortured by unanswered sentiments that you took to the other side. This is nothing but rhetoric and a cry for those still alive to consider the price of their life. Ben was my guest on the show today, and I wanted to start off by reading one of his poems because I'll be honest with you, his poetry is not for the faint of heart. Um, it is uh, incredibly graphic, and not necessarily in um, you know a Tarantino esque way, um, but it, it he he spends I think a lot of time and bandwidth in fear in the realm of fear, writing about fears and existential crises and um, the raw bitter end of things sometimes even having a bit of a dystopian, bleak um, outlook. 
and I'll be honest with you, it, it's stuff that sometimes I, I can't read. Like, I'm like, this is really well done. I, I just can't wrap my head around it. And um, I, or I don't want to wrap my head around it, let me say. <laughs> I don't want to ingest this right now. Um, so I was to be able to sit down with him and pick his brains and find out where these ideas come from, what was fueling this was um, kind of important to me uh, for a lot of the stuff he had submitted to me on the literary blog. Um, I was like, he's really talented. I was like, I got to know more about this dude and where he's coming from. And, uh, you know, he's such a great guy and um, a fun interview, a fun guy to talk to. Um, And I was glad to get a little bit more insight into him and into where his head's at, understanding that he's been into metal for a long time, far predating his time in the military kind of explains a lot. Uh, You also start to understand his imagination and why certain, you know, bleak dystopian <laughs> viewpoints kind of have appealed to him aesthetically uh, in certain ways for a while. Um, and then to kind of juxtapose that with his military career and uh, the events he saw on one particular September 4th, which we will talk about in the episode. Um, so I won't say too much more about it here. I think really gives context that you need to understand to fully appreciate his work. And I always respect poets or anybody, any, any artist that is a veteran that doesn't, um, what's the best way of saying this? I I guess market themselves or really try to leverage uh, their veteran status. Um, I don't blame those that do, especially when it is, incredibly central and germane to their work. And then it's kind of necessary to say, um, but I, of course, I'm always impressed and, and, and as said, have great respect for those that like Buck Bolliard comes to mind immediately of people that, that kind of don't necessarily run from their veteran status, but really don't trumpet it at all. And Ben falls into that category, but I do think uh, practically speaking, he shouldn't <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, because I think his experience is important context to fully appreciate and value his work. It's kind of like wine tastings. You know, uh, I'm not a wine drinker, but uh, I know those that are. And, you know, when they wax poetic about, you know, the vintage or the year or the country that the wine is from or the part of the country that the wine is from or the weather that year that affected the wine and that part of the country that the wine is from you know, it kind of helps their appreciation of the wine. And I think Ben's poetry is like that. I think it, um, it deepens, broadens, has more impact and more resonance, the more, you know, about him. So a fascinating dude. Um, I feel like this will be the first of several times we will talk because there's a lot of stuff I left on the table. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I've been busy with the Savage Wonder Festival. So, uh, you know, I was glad we could get Ben on uh, to talk about his stuff, but I, afterwards I was like, God, my focus was too split. There were a bunch of things I, I should have jumped on more in the conversation. So anyway, uh, I don't think any of that will affect your guys' enjoyment of the episode, but that is just where we're at. Uh, yeah, I think you guys are going to have a blast with this one. Uh, I'm laughing to myself right now because I've got a list of Ben's poems up here, and uh he's he's just an imaginative dude and if you're somebody that likes to 
really see the uh, if you appreciate the the shocking capabilities of poetry, Benjamin Fortier is for you. Uh, I I will say that I think he is. I want to make sure I'm not going to regret saying this, and by regret I mean just second guess it. It's not a horrific thing to say, but I think he's the most shocking poet that I've featured on the blog or that I read regularly. I think that's right. I can I can hear Mason Roderick screaming, uh, you know, a primal scream in outrage right now when I'm saying that. But uh, but uh, Mason stuff is 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 as a different has a different feel to it. I don't know. Anyway, um, I'm not to go on and on and on about it, but uh, you guys are in for a really fun time. Uh, if you don't know Ben's work, check it out on the blog. Uh, check out the links in the show notes. It's well worth your time. Uh, just uh, wear a cup. Be forewarned. All right. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Vet Rep, and this is the savage wonder of Benjamin Fortier. Well, Ben, I feel like this has been a long time coming, man. About time yeah. we got you on the show. Appreciate it, dude. Yeah, man. I mean, as soon as I found out about what you were doing, I was like, dude, look at this fucking roster of like people. I like follow almost all these people. I want to know more about them. So I just I jumped right on top of it. And yeah, we've been lucky. We've been lucky with our guests, and I'm I'm super grateful for it. Um, it's funny. Yeah. When you came on board and like, I, I mean, you've been an adamant supporter and friend uh, on social and I can't tell you how much that's meant. And just so everyone's clear, I booked Ben very early. So it wasn't like he had to butter me up to get on the show in case anybody's wondering that. But yeah. um, I want to ask you, I want to start off by talking to you about what you sent me. So Ben sent me um, a copy of his second book of poetry stones of the wooded valley and with it you sent me two pictures um and i want to ask you about those first because i've been looking at them and i was like i don't want to find out too much yet so i was like let me wait for the show and then find out what the story is with these did you take these yourself yeah i did take those um kind of my mo is like if i send somebody a book i also send them some pictures that i took so it's just kind of cool man yeah is this stuff by you? So one of the pictures, uh, so everybody knows what I'm looking at, is of a mountain um, with a bunch of evergreen and fir trees on it. So is that near you? That was probably either up in New Hampshire or Vermont. Okay. All right. And then the other one I love, it's like something you'd find on a postcard, um, like for sale. And is that like a, a steel wheel or what? what is this? Ah, that's a... I've, I like that you like that one. That is actually at the um, Navy Seabee Museum down in uh, Quonset, Rhode Island, North Kingston, Rhode Island. Okay, so that's a pretty good segue if there ever was one. Were you a Seabee? No, I was a, I was a Marine infantryman, uh, a mortarman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My grandpa was a Seabee, so he, uh, he, he never – he was active during the Korea – Time frame. He never deployed, you know, set boots on the ground t- in Korea, but he did deploy around that time. And, you know, some of the stories that he told kind of inspired me. So are you a historian in any respect? Do you like, do you appreciate military history? Do you like going to see museums and do you get turned on going there? Do you get turned on artistically going there? 
Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, it's funny that you asked because the last, the last Chicago trip that I took, I just flew by myself to Chicago, basically for the sole fact to go to the Pritzker uh, Military Museum. And I just spent a few hours there and it was just such a, they had a World War One exhibit going on. And at the time I was just starting to kind of get into uh, you know, this, the, the stories of World War One and jumping into Dan Carlin's uh, Hardcore History podcast. And um, so it, it really was just like the universe being like, hey, man, you know, come check this out. And I had a blast. Yeah. So, yeah, to answer your question, absolutely. So it's funny because, you know, reading your poetry, um, which I'll, I'll talk about more globally in a second. But one of the things that stood out to me um, was one of your poems, 1918, because it didn't seem like there was necessarily a lot of historical poetry. A lot of your poetry seemed topically inspired, uh, a lot of futuristic stuff, a lot of callbacks also to kind of some medieval imagery. I felt like a, a lot of kind of cool um, melange of... Is melange the right word? I sound pretentious when I say that. But anyway, we'll let that slide. You're but a good it, company. <laughs> but it's right. I mean, you kind of can't help but use crazy words like that when you're talking about poetry. But sure. but it, it's because a lot, and I, I use it specifically for your work because your work is like a nightmare. Your work is dreamlike, then with these undercurrents of fear, dread, um, panic sometimes. I've, and this might just be me, but, uh, and we'll dive into some more of it. But I guess what stood out to me was that then there was this not straightforward historical poem, but definitely a Benjamin 48 take on 1918. And when I saw that, I was like, huh, I wonder how much you, you know, I wondered where that was coming from. If there was a period where you got into world war one or why that poem popped up suddenly where it did in the book. Yeah. I mean, like, like I was just talking about, it was just kind of this, uh, poetry collection basically spans the last 10 or so years. So there's newer stuff like 1918. Um, and then there's stuff that goes back to, you know, about, you know, the 2010, 12 era. So I, I, I think it's cool that you picked up on the, the themes and the visualizations that I typically try to go for. I think it's interesting that you say that it's uh, a nightmare and um, because I do base a lot of my stuff on surrealism and dream-like states and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, to get back to 1918, that was basically just a reflection of, you know, me just kind of processing my knowledge of that war. And poetry has always kind of been that way. It's always kind of been like, I'm going to do a dump X in my brain for all this information because I'm just such a... I'm super interested in a lot of shit and you know, people have called me a Renaissance man and I embrace that title wholeheartedly because I really do like a lot of just a lot of varying subjects and history being one of them. So, you know, I, I just kind of processed all that stuff that I was hearing. And when I hear things, you know, stories, letters and stuff like that, you know, I start to visualize them. Uh, that World War One movie at the time came out. Nineteen fourteen was it? it was no, ni- nineteen. Was it nineteen seventeen? Nineteen seventeen. Yeah, probably people are like screaming it at their radio. Yeah, right, right. right. But yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Um, something like that. Uh, then there was, I guess that was the only World War One movie that came out recently, right? Pretty I much. Can, I can't remember. Yeah. I'm so not up on my movies, but yeah, um, same. Peter but, Jackson also did that documentary, which I have yet to see. That's right. But, yeah. I know. I was supposed to watch that on a plane, which I felt like was a good place to watch it. Uh, I felt like I, that would get my attention. And then it, the whole system crashed on me and I never saw it. And I did not seek it out again. Um, mm-hmm. Is that where this came from? Was it was it inspired from the movie? Was it inspired from the museum trip? Where did 1918 come from? Do you remember? Uh, I can't recall exactly. It was probably more around the time of the the Pritzker museum trip. Okay. Where they had a lot of just really incredible artwork and paintings. And, you know, it was a, it's, it's a library and a museum. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's, I, I know of it, but I know I have not looked into it in any depth. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's cool. It's right up my alley. So it was probably around that time. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to do something I haven't done before um, just because I, I want to see if I got this at all. Right. So um I want to tell you what I think your process looks like and tell me if, if this is at all uh, matches up with reality. All right. Reverse engineering. Um, Here we go. Yeah. Re- yeah let's see. Let's see. Um, so it seems to me like there's one of two, that there's two primary techniques. If I had to guess one that you kind of alluded to before is that you wake up in the morning while the images of a dream that you had are still relatively fresh and you're very good at capturing key moments, key emotional takeaways from it instantly. And then you allow that to kind of develop the idea over time so that it, it has, you know, so it's fully fleshed out and kind of more fully developed, but you're not necessarily a first draft poet. You're, you'll, you'll go over a couple of drafts to make sure you're mining it and keeping the emotional truth of whatever it was that jarred you when you woke up. That's one way of approaching. And then the other approach is topical, that there's something that pisses you off or that intrigues you topically, whether on the news or in a movie TV show. And then you end up spiraling with it into dark and mysterious. And by that, I mean, almost mystical realms. And you kind of let your imagination run wild but from a topical basis, how close or how far am I off on either of those? You're pretty close. And I would, I would say that there, I would add a third category um, in just, that is just sheer observation and, or yeah, no, I mean, I I'd say imagination observation, and I would probably put imagination in the dream like category that you said, you know, I wouldn't say, that I'm very good at like, you know, keeping a dream journal, although I have in the past. Um, I've dude, ever since I was like a little kid, I just had fucking intense, very vivid dreams and had to basically kind of teach myself how to lucid dream Mm. to like be able to keep my shit together and like, you know, just kind of uh, make sure that I wasn't just having nightmares all the time and that I could kind of have some semblance of control while I was dreaming. So yeah, imagination, observation, you know, just uh, being out in the woods in those spots, like uh, that, that picture that I showed you where I was out in New Hampshire or something like that, just observing and just kind of taking things in. I, I'm a very big fan 
of like the romance era, uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau, Walt Whitman, those guys that were just like, fuck society, let's go live out in the woods and shit like that. And as much as I do love my internet and, you know, cell phone and stuff like that, you know, nature has become a very spiritual healing force in my life. So, um, you know, just simply observations being out in nature, you know, so I'd say, yeah, I think that your that your reverse engineering was pretty pretty damn close. I wanted just so people kind of know what I'm talking about. If you don't know Ben's poetry, um, I want to read a couple of titles to give you an idea of what we're talking about, and then I want to actually read Ben to Ben for a second. Um, so, just so you kind of see what I'm talking about, one poem that the title just says so much. The witch sits heavy on my chest. Okay. That conjures up all sorts of images and themes. Warped prisms, state of perpetual illusion, forced auditory hallucinations. And then the one I'd like to read is Torture Killer, Model 421. So uh, before I read it, I mean, I think what somebody's getting the idea of, or at least what I got the idea of, is that as much as we're talking about Walt Whitman and um, kind of being in the woods and responding to nature, it seems what one of the major marks of your writing is your imagination and that you're, you're not, your fascination doesn't seem to be with I don't know, peeling away the layers of ourselves to, to find um I don't know, some inner truth or something like that. It seems to be finding inner truth by adding layers on of imagination and going, Hey, I I need to work through metaphor and I need to work outside of just looking inside myself. I need to find these external mechanisms to be metaphors for what I'm experiencing. And let, and in your mind seems to go to these very crazy imaginative places um, where you have witches and forced auditory hallucinations and, Things like torture killer model four two one, right? <laughs> yeah, man, for sure. Okay, then let me let me read this to you. A brutal machine created to interrogate and understand the human psyche, harvesting and exploiting, cutting skulls open to analyze and study the brain. The body is liquefied. Experimented experimentations performed on all walks of life, children and the elderly alike, monsters created to exploit our weaknesses, intense psychological trauma before the waste of flesh is discarded without remorse or conflict. They'll get inside our minds. The end of days will rise when machines see with our eyes. What the fuck is going on there? Where did that come from? <laughs> what, what, what's, what's going on? What's the genesis of that? Uh, well, it, <laughs> I'm a big Terminator fan. I don't know if you can if you can tell. I, I, I can, yeah. James Cameron had a very very significant impact on my life. Sci-fi movies and things like that. Um, it, I think that one in particular was very kind of an amalgamation of like my love for sci-fi and my love for like death metal and shit like that. And like so, you know, talking about killing kids and cutting skulls open and stuff like that. That is 
par for the course for, you know, brutal death metal, which if nobody could tell, I have like three foot long hair. There's guitars in the background. I am, you know, one of my parts of my identity is that I'm a metalhead, more or less. But I, I do appreciate all a, a wide variety of music. I'm a musician first and foremost. So, you know, there's like a sci-fi inspiration. There's like a death metal inspiration. Um, the name Torture Killer 421 is actually a take on TK421, which is a Star Wars line. It's like uh, he's like asking for the ship number and he says, TK421, what is your, you know, thing? It's like super fucking random, but yeah. So I, I, I like to hide little Easter eggs and stuff like that in, in my books. So, so, so yeah. when, you're, when, when the book is called Stones of the Wooded Valley, are these stones essentially, each of these poems are just, you know, you're out there in nature, but each one of these stones is just another imaginative jumping off point for you to go Absolutely. nuts with. Yeah. Yeah, man. It, it, it is. It is a platform for the imagination. And I like to think that, you know, cause right now I'm studying it in the uh, networking and cybersecurity and shit like that. So my, my head has very much been in like a data in physical layers and blah, blah, blah. And like, like thinking about the amalgamation of man and machine and like, you know, just kind of just thinking about that and just running with it and being like, all right, along the way, I'm going to grab James Cameron, John Carpenter and fucking cannibal corpse. And we're going to just going to have a nice little time. What came first for you? Was it writing? Was it poetry? Was it the music? Was the movies? What first grabbed you in your life? What first got you on the path that you're on now? I mean, as, as far back as I can remember, it was, it was the imagination and then discovering music that just spurred the imagination, seeing movies and television that, you know, continued to spur the imagination as far as like writing poetry and stuff like that. It was, it was lyrical content first. I didn't quite realize that I was writing poetry, but I was. So when was this? What age was this? Uh, like for bands and stuff, uh, like 12 ish. Okay. And what were you listening to? What bands were you into? Growing up, it was a lot of, um, uh, grunge era stuff. So Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, Soundgarden, uh, Metallica, uh, some classic rock stuff, Led Zeppelin, you know, Jethro Tull, The Doors. And then I started to kind of get into extreme music in my teenage years. People started to introduce me to bands like Cradle of Filth and Children of Bodom and Cannibal Corpse, Dying Fetus, you know, just like – and then you just fall down the rabbit hole from there. So, uh, you know, but the early days, it was a lot of – you know, just think, I'm trying to think back of like some of the earliest lyrics that I wrote. And it was really just like a lot of, you know, thrash metal and Testament Metallica misfits, you know, that kind of thing. And just like that teenage angst just kind of coming through and uh, finding my own voice from there was, was pretty important to me. I actually have to give kudos to, Aaron Stainthorpe, uh, the vocalist and lyricist of uh, the band My Dying Bride, 
which is like a if you're not familiar with them they're like a very gothic like progressive like doom metal band that mm. sings a lot about like sorrow and misery in his poetic he just had this very poetic approach to his lyrics and he was taking in influences that i was you know consuming at the time as a teenager like i said walt whitman and emily dickinson mm. and it was just like holy shit dude like this is fucking nuts like the blend of like extreme metal you know fucking double bass and growling and weird time signatures with like these like beautiful lyrics was just that was a game changer what was yeah tell me about the difference in lyrics that was that was hitting you was it that was it the subject matter was it the uh, rhyme scheme what, what was it how was how was it coming different than i don't know yeah, you know, any of the other bands you mentioned, or I'm thinking of like Tom Mariah and Slayer and all that. I mean, what, how is this striking you as different? Uh, it struck me as different because mainly because of the subject matter, you know, going from going from pissed off at society and the world and warfare to sorrow, grief, loneliness, in in just kind of starting to wrap my head around those emotions. Mm. Um, not that I, you know, had anything crazy that happened to my life early on. I just kind of was mature enough to realize that I was heading down a path where I have to come to grips with losing friends, losing relatives and stuff like that. So I kind of started to, I don't know, maybe warm myself up to that. And it wasn't happening to you. You weren't losing people in your family. You weren't surrounded necessarily by it, but just nah. the ideas were starting to get into your head. Yep. Preemptively kind of starting to explore those emotions. Yeah. Did you ever get into kind of the, the lighter side of uh, the thrash scene, Primus, parts of faith, no more, anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not as much, but I, I absolutely enjoy those bands for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I'm a, as people that listen to this may know, I think I've said on this show, but I'm a huge fan of early nineties Bay area thrash funk, um, which tends to be pretty, you know, a bit lighter uh, thematically when it comes Mm -hmm. to lyrics and all that. Um, So where does the Marine Corps fit in in all this? When does that shift happen? Because right now, it seems like you could cruise on the super highway right into grunge metal nerddom and, uh, and, and never really leave. Like there's no need for a reality check. So what sends you hurtling into reality? <sighs> I mean, it's, it's one of those things where like I knew at a certain age that the military was like my calling, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, because besides listening to a lot of metal bands and stuff, I was also reading a lot of, you know, uh, special forces memoirs and stuff like that about Vietnam. Uh, you know, Michael Durant talking about, you know, Mogadishu and that stuff just completely intrigued me. So, like, I had this artist side, but I also had this like warrior side that I knew was calling. And so I kind of just started to like, prepare for that in the sense of like 
I was not like very athletic. Like I was just, I was a fucking English nerd and I loved computers. So I had to like force myself out of my comfort zone and like, you know, join the Boy Scouts and do Civil Air Patrol. And it was shit that I ended up enjoying for the most part. But, you know, I kind of realized that if I just sit around and fuck off and write all day, I'm not going to be the hard dick that I that I want to be, you know, because I kind of had like a long distance, like envision like of this, like, you know, maybe I'll try out for like the commandos or something like that. I don't know what the fuck that looks like, but who knows? As life kind of progressed, you know, 9-11 happens that really I sunk my heels in for that. I was like, you know, let's go get those fuckers. Where, what age were you when 9-11 happened? Were you in high school? Yeah, I was probably a junior. Okay. Junior, senior. So you're at a place where you, you could flip a switch and actually do something. You could actually join up and actually make yep. moves on your own. Okay. Yep. I mean, I had my parents, you know, sign me away when I was 17. I spent a year in the delayed entry program. Uh, so, I mean, it was coming. It was, you know, this was a, a, a marker in my life. So I went with the Marine Corps Reserve um, because I wanted academia to be the other important part of my life. Um, I had considered the National Guard. I had con- people, you know, know that those are routes. But, you know, I was pretty keen and they they allowed recruiters at my school and stuff like that. So, you know, I was... Getting as much information as I wanted to, but I think somewhere along the line, I was like, you know what, if I am going to be in an active combat zone, I don't want to just be in nothing against 11 Bs, but I don't want to just be a basic bitch army reservist, you know, grunt. I want to be surrounded by motherfuckers who have a super aggressive mentality and will fight through the kill zone and, you know, just have that a little more, you know, just the doctrines, I think, are just slightly different with the Marine Corps infantry than, you know, I, I would say it's unit to unit. You know, I'm not trying to, like, bash, you know, well, hardcore. I think, I think after 9-11, though, I think you're right. I think the National Guard and and certainly the res- the reserve units were not as prepared as as Marines would have been. Um, right after 9-11. I think that's a very fair empirical statement. Yeah, I, I mean, but I went Marine Reserve. So, I mean, it, True. There's, there's that. But, well, I, but what, what about the identity of, though, of being a Marine? Was it something about being able to say that you are a Marine? Yeah, man, I drank the Kool-Aid for sure. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, listen, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what did that? So I, I actually wanted to ask when you're talking about doing the Civil Air Patrol and Boy Scouts and all that, was that your decision? Were you like, I need to go do this? Or was it kind of being offered to you and you're like, okay, I'll allow it to happen? Or were you actively seeking out opportunities to do stuff like that? My parents wanted me to be uh, active outside of school. So, you know, it started with like sports and stuff. And then I raised my hand and I was like, hey, I want to pursue this avenue. And they're like, all right, cool. You know, they were very supportive. Yeah. And that that was your idea was a, I'm prepping for, even though 9-11 hadn't happened yet, I'm prepping for something because I think the military is in my future. Yep, absolutely. And at the time, how much, I mean, because you were reading all those books about Vietnam, when when was 
when did the Marines start making a lot of sense to you? Was it just when you were about to sign or had they been on your radar for a while as the most viable option? Uh, I think I probably jumped the fence around 15 ish, 16. It was uh, me and a cohort of friends were like fucking like military dorks, dude. Like we would like run around on Halloween, like with camo on and like, you know, carrying sticks that emanated like rifles sounds or whatever, you know, like we would, you know, sorry, mom and dad, but we snuck out of the house sometimes at like two in the morning and would run ops and stuff. So it was definitely something that I aspired to do. And that warrior calling just was there from a very young age. So, you know, I, I kind of thought about like, as far as job, I knew I wanted to be in some sort of direct action, something along the lines of infantry. I really wanted to do combat videographer for the Marine Corps, mm. but they did not offer that to reservists. So I was like, you know what, man, let's let's just do the infantry thing. It was either that or, you know, I think there was like a mortar transport uh within my like uh drill area limits or whatever so i was like nah man i don't want to do that i want to be a grunt so that kind of set me over that edge and I, it was really like i want to do something i want to start with a foundation i want to get the infantry experience you know because my parents were like hey you're smart you know go to college be an officer stuff like that and i was like I want to like be in this shit for at least a little bit. If I'm going to do that, you know, like the best officers, some of the best officers that I ever met were former sergeants, you know, and because you kind of have that whole full encompassing experience. So I was like, you know, if I want to eventually maybe pursue some kind of special ops thing, you know, let's start infantry. Let's just get the foundation and start from there and see how I like it. Test drive the car, go part time, do the reserve thing. You know, it's, you know, from what the recruiter told me, it's always easier to go reserve to active than vice versa. So I was like, all right, man, that's that sounds great. And then I can go to college on the side, you know, doing the drill weekend thing and uh, it, it, it it made sense in a friend. So back to my friends and growing up and things like that kind of went off on a tangent. We joined the Marine Corps together, my friend Mark and I, and we did the like, you go to boot camp with your homie program. And right. it was fucking wild, dude. It was fucking wild. So like, I think we kind of just were just so fucking pumped about the potentiality of seeing action and like, you know, being in the Marines with, you know, a combat zone, you know, let's do that shit, man. Like in the, and, and that's just, it was just got pushed in then into that hole. Basically. What was, what was boot camp like for you when you actually hit the yellow footprints and everything? Were you super excited? When did, if so, when did the excitement wear off? Um, uh, how satisfied were you feeling? Did you feel like, Hey, I've arrived. I'm actually doing something, you know, adult, I'm out of high school and I'm, um, this is, I'm in my right place. Like what, what was going through your head? What was the emotions like? 
Yeah, dude. Yeah, for sure. I mean, by the time that I had turned 18, I had gotten out of my house a little bit. You know, I grew up in a very rural part of northwestern Rhode Island. And it's just kind of MO that, you know, people just kind of stick around, man, you know, like townies. So, you know, I when I got an opportunity to go to the UK and Scotland at 17 for a class trip, I did that. Uh, that was really cool. Got out of the, you know, the confines of, you know, my, my bubble in New England. And uh, so by the time that I hit the yellow footprints, I felt like a little, I was like, all right, I'm not fully, you know, fresh, completely this kid, like coming right from my house to mm-hmm. Paris Island. Felt like you were a little wor- world weary at that point. A little, a little, a little more bit. so. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah. So for the first couple of weeks, I was like, so that how they do it is they stick you in receiving, which you just kind of have like these temporary drill instructors for a couple of weeks. And I was like, dude, this ain't shit, man. Like, this is going to be a fucking joke, dude. And then we get our real drill instructors. They call it Black Friday. You you meet your drill instructors on that day. And I was like, oh boy, here we go, man. Like this is this is the real the rubber is definitely meeting the road. So you know, thirteen weeks later, come out of it a marine. Felt pretty f- fucking good, man. Like felt like top shit, but knew that there was more to come. Um, you know, so I went in contracted as a mortarman. Uh, so infantry school was right around the corner after boot camp. Uh, so infantry school was, I don't know, like 10 weeks, something like that. You, the first few weeks you're doing basic uh, rifleman techniques and things like that, you know, learning how to patrol and convoy ops and stuff like that. And then the last several weeks were uh, your weapon system. So your machine gunners would go do their thing, uh, mortars, um, you know, if you're a tow gunner, whatever, you know, so you get that specialized training. Uh, around that time, I was, as Marines and sailors and soldiers do, standing in a line for a long, long time and just uh, happened to shoot the shit with somebody. Uh, the reserves at the time had a program where you could go to boot camp you check into your drill center and then you go to infantry school. So you would kind of mesh with your unit a little bit before you were a full blown machine gunner or whatever. So I was chatting with this kid and they basically clumped us, you know, active kids going active, go here, Mm -hmm. kids going reserve, go here. So I was standing in line with this kid and I was shooting the shit with him. And he was like, Oh yeah, I'm from fucking Massachusetts or whatever. And I was like, oh, dude, are are you from 125, 1st Battalion, 25th Marines, shorthanded, we call it 125. He was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, cool, man. Like, I'm I'm headed up there. I'm going to go check in. He was like, do you know we're getting deployed? And I was like, no. <laughs> like, this is so the first time I heard that we were getting deployed was from some Lance Corporal in line for like a, you know, dental appointment or whatever. And I mean, Prior to that, I remember having a moment where, like, I looked down, I saw my my name, I looked to the other, you know, pocket, and I saw U.S. Marines, and I was like, holy shit, dude, like, I 
am a government fucking soldier right now. And that like, I think I was like standing around like a supply warehouse and like some fucking sergeant was just like, your motherfuckers are going to deploy. Who cares if you're fucking reserve or act? And I was just like, holy shit, man. Like he wasn't even like a drill instructor. It was just like some supply dude, like just yelling at a bunch of recruits. So it was that moment in the moment where I was like in line at infantry school where I was like, dude, this is this is fucking real right now. And so by the time I that I actually checked into the unit, that had kind of went away. So I was like, yo, let's fucking go, man. Like, let's go get some. But there were definitely a couple moments. Dude, it was just a boom, boom, boom. Like, not even I don't even know a lot of my active homies that fucking like went through all their schools and then just deployed right away. I right. I I lucked out. I if you ask me, I was fresh. I was hot. I was ready to go, you know, so. And this is what, 2002, 2003? No, no, this was five. So I went to boot camp in uh, the summer of 05, like a week and a half after high school was over. Oh, got you. Okay. Got you. Okay. So 9-11 must have happened. Then you must have been like a freshman then when that happened. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, you're correct. Yeah, 2001, I was probably a freshman. You're correct. Okay. Right. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so, okay, so now, <laughs> so you could have just gone to McDonald's. You went into the Marine Corps right after. High oh, I did, I did McDonald's, now, man. I oh, you did, did McDonald's, McDonald's too. Oh, that, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so now with that with that career training, now you're ready for you're ready for the actual fight. And I'm going to ask you something that I don't I hope isn't just projecting. And I hope it makes sense to you that I asked this. How much did you want the Marine Corps to remake you? How much did you want to go? There's going to be me before the Marines and me after the Marines. Um, or was it a sense of, uh, no, I've already steeled myself to be a Marine. And this is just the natural evolution of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very thoughtful question. Um I think that I was open to the idea of indoctrination. I was open to the idea of being institutionalized to a degree. You know, I didn't want to let go of my identity as an artist, as a creative person, as a writer, as a musician, blah, blah, blah. So I think I kind of just kind of had to compartmentalize that. But to a degree, I definitely was like, all right, you know, I've done all these cool things up until this point, but none of this shit is going to be compared to what I'm going to experience in the Marine Corps. Yeah. You know, the intensity levels just uh, just weren't there, you know, doing as hard as we trained, you know, in karate and stuff like that. The intensity just yeah, not there. Yeah, it's not a parallel. Um, I guess let me ask a, a secondary question. It's kind of on the same track. Um, and maybe let me personalize it to me, uh, instead of just trying to ask you these very kind of obtuse abstract questions. Um, for me, there was, there's, I think always been a sense that I can't do my art in full conscience unless there's been, unless it's been earned because there's too much shit going on in the world or there's too much stuff going on with me. And it's a sense of. Yeah, I need to go sweat. I need to suck. I need something so that I can go live peacefully without any regrets, without any 
curiosity of, I wonder if I blah, blah, blah. Does that, did that apply to you too? Do you think there was a degree of that or is that just a Chris Meyer problem? Chris, I think you're gonna have to look in the mirror for that one, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah I fine. mean, I mean, it was, as I said, like, I, I wanted to definitely expand my horizons, like as a, as a human being, mm. and I wanted to expand my artistic voice. I don't necessarily think that I was relying on one or the other to, you know, be uh, codependent, I guess. Um, I knew I was going to write regardless of where I was, regardless of what I was doing, I was going to write. Um, so I didn't want the experiences to, you know, I knew they were going to feed into each other, but I didn't, like I said, kind of want to, pro- I didn't want to prop them against each other. If that makes any sense. It does make sense. So did you not, uh, so did you continue to write and, and be and feel fulfilled creatively? Now that you had, now that you were a Marine and now that that life was thrust upon you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still have, I probably still have a couple like little notepads where I was just on watch writing poetry and Mm. and stuff like that. Uh, Yeah. Got you. Got you. See, that's cool, man. That's a cool, I mean, you've listened to the show, so you've heard me ask this of people before, but that sense of, you know, that decision that so many veterans in the arts sometimes make, especially when your artistic journey began chronologically before your military journey is, do you stop the arts altogether or do you find a way to filter them in as your life goes in a very different direction with the fact that you could balance both is um, I think that's relatively rare. Um, Did you notice that the tempo slowed down? Did you notice that you'd get ADD or or start to go, Ah, uh, wait. There's. I, I need to be doing something else because I'm. I'm too tense or I'm too wired in a different direction. Or did you find no? This is pretty much in harmony. Each each half of me is in harmony with the other. Uh, I I think it would fluctuate. You know, it would kind of ebb and flow. Um, one of the things that I, I tried to do as much as I could was to write lyrics and or poetry because I knew in the back of my mind, like I had just I had basically disbanded my first band as a teenager. Like we were playing shows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we weren't like, we weren't getting paid and we were playing in front of 20 people, but like I had stepped foot into that life. And I was like, dude, this is, this is for me, man. Like Mm -hmm. I loved performing and, and all that shit. So like I kind of always had the idea in the back of my mind that I was going to come back and do their drill thing and have a band you know, and I was writing for a project or whatever, you know, so I, I, I had to, you know, we, as when you get into that structured lifestyle, you got to have a, you got to have the mission, you know? So my mission was, you know, create material for this band. So it, it wasn't like in the works really, but like, in my imagination, it was me in a band. And yeah, I was going to say, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's awesome that you'd manifested that strongly when it's still sort of hypothetical. Um, but that's that's freaking great. And that's great that it kept you focused that way. Um, 
when you push off and you actually ship out and deploy, how long have you been back from SOI at that point? Oh God. Uh, it was November to March basically. So about, you know, six months ish, but I mean, like when I got into my unit, uh, when I checked into 125, December of 05, we started training. Like we started doing live fires. I mean, dude, there was like, <laughs> it was fucking crazy. Like we were like, we're going to, we're going to Fallujah, Iraq. And here we are like training, like doing like combat shoots, like with like a foot of snow up in the middle of fucking Massachusetts. You know, I was like, dude, this doesn't make any fucking sense. I'm glad that we're getting some, you know, rifle time in, but goddamn, this sucks, man. You know, so a few months um, training in New England. Uh, then we went over to California where we did uh, a few weeks, uh, God, at this camp in Pendleton called Camp Margarita, where we did a division school. Hot shit, man. Like, I felt fucking like on my game, dude. And I was paired up with this awesome fucking mortarman, Corporal Nick King who was unfortunately KIA in the deployment, but like our gun team was hot shit, dude. We got recognized as like, you know, being, you know, one of the best gun teams, but I mean, I can't, you know, give all the credit to me. I was fresh out of SOI. Like this stuff was very fresh in my mind. And um, so, you know, schooling there, 29 palms doing giant combined arms exercises with fucking cobras and tanks and amphibious assault vehicles and urban towns. We did. Uh, are you familiar with the Stu Seagal? It used to be called Stu Seagal Studios out in. Uh, well, it was like a police military training site where um, they'd load you up with like simunition, the paintball rounds mm -hmm. and uh, they would have like kill houses basically. Mm. And uh, so it was like, a, but it was also like actors, you know, dressed up in, uh, you know, the garb and, you know, they would have like fake art, you know, yeah. rocket attacks and shit like that. So it was, it was pretty high speed shit, man. Like our budget was probably pretty fucking decent. Right. So right. Um, I was, I was pumped. I was pumped up. Do you remember even writing at all right up into the deployment itself or did it really start to slide on the back burner? No, no, man. I was, wow. I was writing through deployment. I was, I tried to read as much as I kind of possibly could. I was also writing music kind of not really, but like I had a program similar to um, a program uh, like a MIDI program, it's not quite guitar pro, but it's called Tabit. And it was just like, you know, you just create wow. MIDI notes on, you know, so I was kind yeah. of writing a little bit in that way. I had like a shitty laptop, but I mean, Tabit like took no processing power to run. So it was, you know, so. Was it all war inspired stuff or did you find yourself sometimes just going the completely opposite direction? Uh, mainly war and like heartache like uh missing you know my crotch or whatever yeah um okay let's talk the deployment then so yeah. when you go over um where did they send you we were in fallujah iraq and uh this was after phantom fury 
for those of you who are interested in the you know military history modern military history at this point um phantom fury was the big operation that happened uh mainly uh 0304 time frame uh, you know, and it was some of the most intense urban combat that had been experienced since Vietnam. Uh, you know, they compared it to Hue City, which, uh, you know, I could only read and see documentaries about. But um, so Phantom Fury happens. And here we are. We come in about 18 months after Phantom Fury. So the city of Fallujah is you know, just kind of starting to get back up on its feet, but it's spring of 06 and the insurgency is starting to ramp up. So, you know, at this point we were pretty much expecting IEDs, maybe the occasional suicide car bomb, but nothing super like intense compared to what, you know, the people who had been through the initial push so, you know, I, I guess the, the best way that I kind of tell like my civilian friends like was like we're basically like cops, you know, uh, because I was in a weapons company. We had, um, you know, truck assets. So we were rolling uh, Humvees, you know, a few months in, you know, we finally started getting like the nice up armored Humvees and stuff like that. For the first couple months, they were kind of like the the raggedy ones, but they started getting the nice ones in and uh geez yeah so i mean we had truck capabilities so we were typically either a quick reaction force um that would you know uh you know if somebody was in trouble we'd go help them out we would bounce between uh some of the forward operating bases that were around the city uh, but we mostly operated out of this, um, what used to be a resort, uh, which was called uh, Camp Barria. And it was uh, it was an old resort. I think the Uday and Husay, like would like stay there and like, you know, bang strippers or whatever and like right. have a good time. And, you know, it, it, but there was also rumors that like, you know, there were bodies in the water, stay out of the water stuff like that. So it was. It was an interesting place. I mean, I was not expecting Fallujah to be what it was. Like, I was thinking, like, you know, we're going to go out into the desert and, like, this is going to be, like, the fucking sand everywhere. Yeah. But, like, it was basically, like, a third world city, you know, right along the Euphrates. Like, man, and, like, as, like, a, as, like, a history nut, like, I was just like, dude, this is yeah. fucking insane. Like... In what other occupation, like, would I be able to, like, be here? You know, like, I drive over the Euphrates every day. Like, what the yeah. fuck, dude? Yeah. It's wild. Did um, – I find, I find this is always kind of a personal question, and I don't – that's why I don't ask it that much, but I, I wanted today. Um, what was it like the first time you were subjected to hostile fire? How did that strike you? Where was, where was your emotions at? What was your mindset? Excitement um, with a little bit of fear, mainly because I felt pretty safe inside those trucks. And, you know, the first time that we took, you know, contact, 
you know, you do your thing. You might return fire. You might not. There was a lot of like touch and go for these guys until they started getting really brave in the summer, which we can get to um, in a little bit. But I mean, for the first few months, dude, every time we took contact, I was like, let's fucking go. Yeah. You know, like, let, let's do this shit. Like, it wasn't too bad being being the nail in those instances because like you know I, you know we had a few IEDs but nobody really got fucked up too too bad it wasn't until you know uh you know the summer that things really started to heat up and like we lost our first guy we lost Nick King he was killed by a sniper um a sniper killed a couple other uh marines from one of the line companies um and the line, one of the uh, Charlie company was in the middle of the city. They were in an old government facility that was smack dab in the middle of the city. So those guys would take in, you know, IDF all the time, but they would do foot patrols and stuff like that. And yeah, dude, sniper fucked them up. I was going to say, yeah. How much were you guys dismounted? Not very much. Okay. But we, once, once snipers started becoming a problem, we were buttoned up. You know, and, and the line companies were doing a lot of dismounted patrols, but, you know, Nick King, he was out. They set up a, a fake IED. So because they knew our TTPs by this time, mm-hmm. they knew like if, you know, these guys are going to halt for an IED, they're going to set up a cordon and then they're going to dismount, you know, and maybe look around or whatever. And so they caught on. So once that started becoming a problem, you know, we had to adjust, uh, you know, our, our, our TTPs and shit. So what did that mean to you? Um, now that shit just got real. It really wasn't even real until like the end of the deployment where we were subjected to, you know, what I consider, the worst day of my life. I don't know. I don't want to speak for everybody else, but uh, the morning of we were out doing a patrol for us, you know, a security patrol, satellite security patrol, because there was a memorial service happening in that base in the middle of the, the city. So basically we would do uh, like a dispersion kind of patrol where, you know, if anybody was going to do any indirect fire, they couldn't because we were roaming around the areas where they would probably set up their mortars or whatever. So, um, fucking we're driving around, you know, it's quiet. All of a sudden, you know, the earth shakes, we come up, there's a burning Humvee, you know, the, the guys that are, you know, also satellite patrolling hit an IED, but this wasn't an IED that we had ever seen before. It was an underbelly shot. Whereas before everyone else, we had been getting hit in the doors, you know, like our turret gunners might get fucked up, you know, might get a concussion or whatever, but you know, they realized, all right, let's do a pressure plate or a mine or something like that. So that way it blows up literally, you know, into the Humvee. And so right off the bat, three KIA, um, which we had never seen, you know, none of the other companies had seen up until that point, this was the biggest catastrophic kill that we had experienced. So, you know, there's me fucking like, dude, what the fuck, you know, watching this truck burn, 
fucking there's like gear in the middle of the street and so you know we do our thing fucking setting up security motor transport guys come in they collect you know the the fucking vehicle what's left of it it's like burned to the ground basically by the time they get there we we know one guy is like severely burnt but he ends up making it cody hill fucking god bless you dude think about you often um a couple hours later on a security uh you know just like static security my fucking captain's truck get hit by a rocket i'm like fucking you know 40 yards away i'm like dude what the fuck as if this day couldn't get any shittier so we fucking you know i don't even think we like looked for the guy because like i said touch and go man like it wasn't even worth like his truck was fucked up like he'd had like three tires the hood was like all fucked up yeah and um so we're like all right let's go back to base grab chow rest and refit and we do we you know hang out for a little bit do our thing and we're like all right we're gonna move from this base to a fob and we're gonna call it a night during our movement fucking i'm driving along you know and i was the first vehicle it typically wasn't i was usually the second but i had since the captain's truck got blown up he was riding with us and um you know driving along driving along lights out nvg's down everything's green you know and then this fucking this white flash happens in the NVGs and the earth rumbles. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Come on, dude. Come the fuck on. So, you know, the second to last or third to last truck in our convoy got hit. Fucking I turn around. My turret gunner is just like, you know, like, yeah. I, I don't know where the contact is coming from. Like, it's my job to drive and get him where he needs to be. So if there's, you know, shit coming at us, you know, he can have an open, you know, avenue of fire and shit. But my job was like, as the first truck in line, I was like, dude, I wanted to fucking floor it and just be like, yeah. see ya, you know, yeah. like, fuck this shit, dude. Yeah. Fuck this shit. But, you know, you build that camaraderie, you build that, you know, there was nothing else in that moment, but, me and my homie to the right of me, who was a Phantom Fury veteran, by the way, fucking shout out to Tim Whitmer, fucking one of the greatest NCOs I've ever fucking had in my life. Uh, you know, but even he was like, dude, what the fuck? You know, but he helped, you know, get everything together. He made sure that, you know, we got on the radio. So, you know, I'm I'm I pull I pull over, you know, I pull up to the kill zone. My fucking turret gunner is just going to town with the 240 or the saw or whatever. And I mean, dude, it's just madness. Madness. I look out, my fucking platoon sergeant's like standing in front of my truck, just like, what? Like in a daze. Fucking, I look over, my my buddy's getting dragged across the street. People are just fucking jumping out of their trucks and shooting like into this house where we were taking fire from. It was insane, dude. So, you know, fucking... Fast forward an hour, hour and a half, you know, here we are just chain smoking cigarettes outside of uh, the medical facility um, in Camp Fallujah. And uh, my friend John was launched out of the turret. He fucked up his knee real good. He got pretty bad burns, but he was okay. My other friend, Pat, 
lost his left leg. My friend Shane lost his right leg. And it was just like, it was one of those days, man. So, you know, <laughs> I wrote about that song in the band that I'm in now. It's called September 4th. And it is simply just uh, up until that moment, dude, it felt great being the hammer, you know, having direct action, you know, being the guy to like, you know, and we weren't like kicking down too many doors and shit like that. But like, you know, there were a couple ops that we went on where we had the upper hand and we were capturing bad guys and destroying equipment and stuff like that. But like, dude, that day made me realize when you're the nail and it's bad, you you, you don't want to do this anymore. Like this is, you know, in the patrols that we had, we were just about four weeks away from demobing, like getting in a helicopter, going the fuck home. The patrols afterwards, I don't fucking remember those. Like I, my memory is completely blank for the patrols that I had from that night to, you know, the four weeks after. And we patrolled. Like, we did another, you know, handful of patrols. So, and we were left seat, right seat with the company that was coming in, which was another reserve unit. And, brother, they got fucking rocked. They had double our KIA, fucking, like, double our wounded, you know. And we had a couple, you know, hundred guys, I think, get Purple Hearts. And so, I consider myself very lucky, you know, but we told these guys, we were like, we are bequeathing you a deadly fucking AO because they had just done like this prisoner release where a bunch of guys from Abu Ghraib like came out and they were like, you know, Oh, we know all these cool new tactics and shit. Let's fuck some, you know, coalition dudes up. So, yeah. So I'm wondering um, in your case, because you're coming from this um, thrash, heavy music background, and you'd been listening to lyrics about, you know, dead babies and, you know, stacking bodies for years, and now you have September 4th. How did that, how did you conflate all that? How how did that, was there cognitive dissonance where you're like, oh, shit, did the lyrics suddenly mean something different? to you did you find yourself still still able to slip back into the same kind of metal headspace or were you like ah dude some of this shit's just a little bit harder to sing or write about i like that you brought up cognitive dissonance because i like to think that that's kind of one of the cornerstones like of my work um you know the exploration of dualism the exploration of paradoxes juxtapositions you know moral fucking juxtapositions and stuff like that you know i was able to find a lot of solace in that music despite knowing that you know james hatfield never fucking was engaged you know by a fucking insurgent so you know but still there was there was a bit of solace in in that and you know um writing september 4th was incredibly cathartic because it was, I wanted to pay homage to the resilience of the men who were hurt that night in day. Um, Because I don't know what the fuck it's like to sit in Walter Reed 
and not know like, you know, like what tomorrow looks like. And like, you know, like, dude, I just, it, it helped me to empathize so intensely with amputees, you know, whether you're combat, whether it's combat related right. or not and stuff like that. But seriously, like it was something that I, I found a lot of solace in the music. And so I wanted to pay homage to these guys, to their fighting spirit, you know, whether it was, you know, during the ambush and they were getting some or after the fact when they're fucking struggling with their PT and they're like, yo, I want to fucking off myself or whatever. I, I'm not saying that any of them, you know, have expressed that to me. But, you know, I would I would fucking think about jumping off a fucking bridge. If, it's just it was so unbelievable to me to know that these guys and my buddy Pat is like a legislative director for like the VFW. He's fucking killing it. Shane, uh, uh, you know, Dorchester um, police detective. He's fucking killing it. So, you know, these guys just fucking they inspire the shit out of me. And, yeah. you know, in, 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 and I, so I didn't want to do like a sob story. I didn't want to do like a, Oh, war is really bad. Like right. I wanted to be like, combat is intense. And when you see somebody get hurt or you are hurt, the combat doesn't stop necessarily, yeah. you know, like you are battling for as, maybe as long as you live. You know, and just because that is that one firefight is just like a flash in the pan, so to speak, with the shit that you may carry for the rest of your life. So I kind of wanted to wrap all that up in a song. And it's like a it's like an eight and a half, nine minute long song. It's fucking episodic. It's, you know, got a lot Mm. of ups and downs. And, you know, uh, the band that I wrote it with just they just did such a good job because it was something that I wrote on that little program that I was talking about earlier. I was like, you know, if you're familiar with like MIDI music, it's, it's like eight bit Nintendo music. It's like, so like, it doesn't sound fucking cool when you play it, but like, you know, I had the drums and the guitars and everything laid out. You know, I consider myself a bit of a songwriter more than just like a guitarist. So, you know, compositionally I was creating these songs and I brought it to the band and we fucking fleshed it out, dude. And it was like, dude, this is what this needed. This is amazing. This is such a cool. It really helped to kind of put one of the many bows on that experience. That part I could absolutely see. I could absolutely see both therapeutically and artistically the value of addressing that day. Um, I guess my my first thought is the other, let's say, imaginative suffering, um, you know, or even listening to, uh, so I, I was a huge Faith No More fan, but there's certain songs of theirs that the more shit that I've seen, I'm like, dude, I, I can't listen to that right now. Like, it's a cool song. I get it. Mike Patton's sort of funny, but you're fucking talking about, you know, shit that I, I just, I can't get into that headspace right now, man. Did that happen to you? Did you find any stuff that you were like, Hey, I got my own shit to mine. I got my own shit to unpack, but to just hear kind of these other kind of imaginative sufferings, I, I kind of don't have the bandwidth for that anymore. Was there any? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I totally, totally pick up on that. And I, I consume a lot of music as uh, part of one of my hobbies is I run a um, YouTube channel with one of my friends where we do metal music reviews. And um, so I consume a shitload of music like a month, you know, like yeah. I'm listening to like 40 albums a month wow. sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. Um, so, yeah, man, uh, part of my connection to music can be like, dude, this, this is fake as fuck or this is super juvenile or something like that. But for, for the most part, I try to give everybody their you know, everybody's a person and they have their own things and I'm being empathetic and being nice, you know, but, but yeah, there's definitely some shit where I'm like, eh, whatever. Yeah. I mean, they, cause that seems like to me, I mean, I think when you, once you've been face to face with, let's call them real world problems, it's, it's kind of hard. Sometimes it feels sophomoric or, or beneath you to, to sometimes go back and still give it reverence when it's like, dude, you're, this is high school shit. You're, you're even, and, and not even just the emotions, but sometimes even just the subject matter where it's like, dude, why, why, why is that what you're choosing to write about? Like, if you knew at all what you were talking about, this would not be something you'd be diving into. That's just me. But do you feel any of that as well? Dude, that's why I didn't send you my first book. One, because I don't have any more copies of it. And two, because it's, it's sophomoric. It like, I, I, I ran out of the copies and I was like, I don't think I'm even going to bother like renewing it because that was another volume that spanned 10 years of, of, you know, selected poetry, but, you know, reading back on a lot of them now, they're, they're lame. They're really bad. So did you write those uh, after you got out or were those written before you ever entered the Marines? Some of them were during. So that was, that was a period of like, we'll call it like 14 to 24. Wow. You know, age wow. range. Yeah. See, dude, that's actually really, that actually, I mean, no matter how bad the poetry might be, um, which I'll take your word for it if you think it's sophomoric, but to me, that's actually super interesting because that's almost the evolution of a person right there, watching it go in those kind of pivotal years before, during, and after, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess if you really want to you know, start to get to know Benjamin Fortier, you know, definitely pick up my, it's called uh, the, the silent whispers of omens. Um, it was also one of the titles of the songs in um, one of my first bands. So I was like, I wrote that song. I'm going to use the title too. Um, but I mean, some of it, I can tell, like when I read it, I'm like, all right, I was like 13 there. All right. That was like 19, you know, so I can kind of tell there's definitely some okay ones in there but you know i'd like to think that i just want to be in the now and be like all right sure, if you're really sure. interested in the anthology and seeing my process yeah go get it it's on amazon be my guest <laughs> got you got you um tell me about coming back from fallujah from the end of that deployment um what's the flight back like don't remember. Um, I remember getting to California. Um, I remember kind of the demo process. Um, started drinking a lot. Um, was was subjected to alcohol as like a seventeen year old for the for a few for the first few years prior. I was like, "Fuck that, I'm straight edge," blah blah blah. And then I got drunk for the first time, and that was fun. Uh, but yeah, coming back, started boozing pretty hard. Um, 
really started to struggle as a Marine. You know, I started to feel my efficiency start to tank. Um, struggled with going to drills. Um, found out that we were slated for a deployment to Afghanistan in 2011 and did not deal well with that mentally. Um, so I seeked medical separation for post-traumatic stress, which was granted to me. And, um, you know, I think, I think part of me still kind of feels like a little bit of guilt for that, just because that there was a fresh batch of kids and a lot of them were kids that were going to go to Afghanistan. And I was one of the only dudes that had combat experience. So while they could have used, you know, that I was in, in good shape physically, mentally, spiritually, I was fucking boozing way too hard. I was just struggling, dude, like with survivor's guilt, um, you know, depression, you know, and I had un undiag what I call undiagnosed depression as like a teenager and, you know, anxiety and shit like that, too. But I didn't want that to get in the way of, you know, what I wanted to do. So, you know, at MAPS, when they're asking, you know, of course, yeah, you know, no, sir, of course. And, you know, the, of course, right. the recruiter, the recruiter does the media training with you, too. So. Right, right. What looking back on it now, um, what was going on for you? Um, or let me rephrase: Would any would any of the issues have been as acute without September fourth, or was September fourth really the crux of everything you were trying to unpack? It was the crux. That was that was the capstone. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And that was that is why I named a song after it. That is that is the day that I think about every day, you know? Uh, so my next book that's coming out is going to be published through dead reckoning collective. And I do a few poems about that at night because, uh, you know, there's just, there's so much more to it than I, you know, I could sit here for a few hours and really build more context around, you know, the lives of the people that were lost, what that meant. You know, one of the guys, that was killed. I keep in touch with his sisters very regularly. They are part of the 1st Battalion, 25th Marines Association, you know, which is uh, I'm a vice president of and we are looking to, you know, contribute to the legacy of the 1st Battalion, 25th Marines. And, you know, th so there's just like this whole massive thing in so much of it for me just goes back to that date. And that's not that is the day where i saw the most fucked up shit um it's not the day you know you know we had been in contact before we had seen ieds before you know i had seen people get hurt but not to that magnitude and trust me i realize combat is a spectrum and there are people in the ukraine right now that might be fighting for fucking three days straight you know, with little, sure. you know, break and stuff like that. So I understand that there is a spectrum. But to me, that was the culminating event. So, you know, for to to realize and have enough self-realization and introspection. And if you can't tell through my poetry, I am an incredibly introspective person, you know. So I have this, you know, this inside and this outside imagination of sorts. But I'm also very in tune with like, 
my fucking brain chatter because you know, I would just, I would have to be to like try and fucking battle my dreams and stuff like that. So like, what the fuck is going on with my brain, man? I got to figure it out. Yeah. You know, over the years I've realized that I need a bit more, you know, professional level brain analysis, but you know, just on that level, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, sorry. I got, I got stuff to help you get back. Um, the five years after that deployment, before you actually part ways with the Marine Corps, um, what's your writing like? So you're self-medicating a lot. Um, you're having a whole bunch of issues. What, artistically, what's happening for you? Are you trying to address it artistically? Is there any effort to? Are you trying to avoid it? Are you just, do you just totally drop most of the writing or most of the music? Where were you at? During that no, time. I was uh, so I was back in the reserves, like you said, for about from 2000. We demobilized at about the beginning of 2007, basically, is when I started drilling. So I was in for about two years um, oh, that I, I was okay. that I was right. that I was drilling. Um, so during that time, uh, I was going back to, I went back to school. Um, I started my first uh, run at school. Apologize for the dog. No, um, I went for a video production at a local institute of technology and um, the writing was still going though, man. Like it was, I started a band, um, you know, it was uh, the outlet that I think that I needed at the time. I wasn't afraid to approach difficult subjects like, you know, uh, grief, loss. Uh, but I think there was definitely a period that I was like, I still kind of need to sit with this a bit and I still need to um find other ways to um you know just kind of process what was going on so i think that's why you know it took so long for me to write september 4th you know it took several sure. years sure for that to happen um were you guarding memories were you guarding anything from that deployment um when you when you're back and again a bear my i mean what i'm what i'm trying to get the heart of is that you were struggling that, you know, at least militarily, you know, your, your, you know, your career as it were is kind of falling apart and you're drinking a lot. Is the art helping? Is it hurting? Are you finding wall that you're putting walls up around the experience or are you trying to talk openly and sort it out and it's just not tracking? Like how, what's going on with all that? It wasn't very long that I had been back that I started to go to a counselor and to okay. seek some, you know, help. Uh, I found a lot of solace, like I said, in music. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I was probably, I was probably ingesting. And I don't want to say that there's a wrong type of music, but like I was in the headspace mm -hmm. of like, I might kill myself. And I was listening to like, music that was kind of supporting that, you know, like yeah, right. sad shit and stuff like right, that. Right. So, I mean, you, you got to kind of be careful uh, in, in that respect. But I, I recall very distinctly one night I was in my room 
with the door shut, like drunk, listening to music, sobbing. And I lived with my parents at the time. You know, I was 20. Um, and I remember going downstairs, like take a leak or whatever. And my dad called me over. He was like, hey, you know, like if something's going on, like, you know, maybe maybe it's time to start looking for some help. And it, that wasn't like the moment, but I was like, yeah, I'm probably hurting a bit worse than I'm willing to admit, you know? And so I think that kind of really was a humbling experience. So thank you, dad, for <laughs> listening it's, to me cry. Yeah. It's kind of funny. I, I, while you were saying that, I, I kind of realized I'm, I'm treating your story like too many others instead of it as its own individual experience, because that is incredibly unique that you're living back home, that you're still so very young and you have your parents there. What was their reaction? Dude, How much of a support was that? Dude, my demobilization was I was one of the only guys like left in my platoon that like I actually deployed with. Like, it's not like, you know, because a lot of the guys that I, I went over with weren't contractually obligated. They wanted to go because they wanted to go. Uh, a lot of them actually volunteered to go because they had a, a choice um, because they went to Okinawa. I think it was in support of OEF to like help keep the lights on, but they went to Oki and they did like a, you know, training exercise there, but that was considered a no shit reserve deployment. You know, it was a year long. Right. So those guys, when I joined the, their six year contract, so they had the not the option. They were like, you can go or you don't have to. So one of the guys who raised his hand was Nick King. I throw his name out there because I can't say it enough. You know, I want to try and memorialize him as much as possible. But, you know, he didn't have to go. He didn't have to fucking go. But when he, you know, you look around at your peer group and, all right, yeah. he's going, oh, I'm fucking yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sure. when I came back, a lot of those guys got out. Um, my active duty homie, Tim Whitmer, had gotten – he basically just went for that deployment. Like he just signed the contract for that. So I was left with like a handful of people that I knew that yeah. experienced what I experienced. And I remember a drill with some gunnery sergeant in like the, the active duty side of the house was like giving us shit for like, you know, being broken and having fucking PTSD because a couple of my a couple of the dudes I deployed with, I think were also seeking med seps. And he was like talking shit. And I was like, dude, fuck you. Like, you don't like, who is this fucking dude? Like we didn't know who he was. Like, where was he in 06? I don't know. Was he a Marine? Sure. But he wasn't sitting in my truck. He wasn't in our platoon, you know, that kind of thing. So I looked around dude and I fucking felt so alone. So alone. Like, it was it was just such a shitty feeling like and yeah you're right i was back with my parents you know like i missed out on a scholarship because i deployed they were like all right yeah the scholarship is for a school that i want to go to uh you know but i was like well i can't take it because going away uh but you know once i got back i went back to school but i was living with my parents i was fucking 19 20 years old yeah you know as drilling as a reservist but I actually don't think I even had to go to a first few drills. 
Sure. You know, like I, because like a de- post deployment thing, you know, like take six months off yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, so dude, I was fucking drinking, fucking getting fat and just falling into a pit. And how was that working with your parents? Like, I mean, and I'm not saying this in a negative way. I'm thinking like, that seems like the framework of a support network that most people would not have because most people aren't 19 and 20 at home coming back off a combat deployment. So the fact that you're there and you've got them, people that have known you your whole life right there, I imagine that would be a help, right? It was a help until a divorce started coming into the picture, which was about 18 months or so after I had, you know, eh, maybe, maybe a couple of years. Yeah. Um, wow. so, so that, that shook me up too, man. And huh. But yeah, no, absolutely. My parents were super supportive. I'm not trying to say that, you know, that they weren't, but uh, to to come back to a place and see, you know, my parents probably notice a change in me and they probably uh, were very happy that I was safe. They were reading some of my letters and journals and shit and I was writing a lot over there, journaling a lot and I actually got in trouble for posting that shit publicly. Sorry, but I only got like, I got a slap on the wrist. Basically I wasn't saying anything like, you know, uh, that would have, they would have been able to nail me with, but you know, I, Oh, like OPSEC stuff. Yeah. There's no OPSEC okay. shit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. but, but dude, they scared the shit out of me. They like fucking pulled me off a of patrol and they were like, we read your journal, blah, blah, blah. And like, you got to stand before the man. And I was like, bro, I'm just trying to fucking keep my parents like in the loop. Like, you know, I knew that my, my, my friends back home who were sending me care packages and stuff were reading this journal and they know me as a pretty fucking transparent person. So like I was, you know, basically going to tell them how it went without trying to scare anyone too much. And also trying not to, you know, be like, the grid to our next attack is fucking, right. you know, zero. You know, well, I wasn't so, doing anything So this is like why that. you were overseas. You were posting this online. I was. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. Got we had it. an internet center. They intercepted that shit. And I stood before sure. the man and, you know, they gave me a, they gave me a psyche Val Cause I wrote about how fucking angry. And, you know, I think some guys like got blown up as I was fucking pissed. I was like, you know, let's string these fuckers up, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But they couldn't do yeah. anything because there wasn't anything besides like angsty teenager shit, basically. Right, so, right, right. So, but you I know, see that because saying like string these fuckers up in Iraq when they're trying to win the messaging. Oh, yeah, right. Probably it was like ruffled some feathers. Yeah. Oh, dude, for sure. It was all yeah. hearts and minds. And here I was yeah, fucking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The single antidote to the coin strategy. Yeah, ben I got Fortier. it. I, I got mean, it right here. Blowing it up. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. What, what was, uh, yeah. What was your parents' reaction to when you came back home? Did you see yourself differently in their eyes? Were you like, man, hold on. I'm a man now. Like, like, are you, like what was the sense of fulfillment or, or the sense of like having outgrown that part of Rhode Island where you are and now you're with your parents? Like, it just seems like you might have changed a whole lot, yet your world hasn't changed a whole lot. And that seems like that would be difficult to deal with. Yeah, I think that's something that I kind of struggled with was like, you know, I'm 20 years old, but I'm a combat vet, you know, and right. like 
you know, and all this shit. So, you know, I got like, I remember being very bitter, super bitter, like mm. towards, towards people. Um, I felt very entitled. Um, I, you know, remember one of my first jobs being, you know, Sears, like merchandise warehouse person and just feeling like it was just so fucking beneath me. Yeah. And so I, I like couldn't wait to just get into like the academia like funnel and, you know, start to, you know, rise with a little bit, rise a little bit to the top, so to speak, you know, just to kind of set myself apart. Did that, did that still bring out a lot of resentment in you though, now to see people that were literally your age around you and maybe taking things for granted that you knew better than, than to take for granted? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not going to shy away from that. I think a lot of, uh, you know, young vets that use the GI bill for the first time and stuff see that. Yeah. Did you ever get over it? Yeah, I'm back in school now again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, without resentment, without without it, without going, oh yeah, motherfucker. Well, yeah. While you were here doing this, I was there doing that. You know. Yeah, that dude. That it took me like my entire twenties, but yeah, yeah. Um, what about with girls? What about with relationships? Like, how how did that? Because obviously, you know, your your writing gets into interpersonal relationships and there's a lot of angst there as well. Um, those formative social interactions that happen in your twenties now are colored because of what you have done at such a young age. What are those like for you in the 20, in your twenties? Uh, I had my first serious girlfriend basically coming right off the deployment and la that lasted a couple of years and it probably should have lasted a year because she tried to break up with me halfway through because I was a hot mess. And, you know, I just kind of romanced my way back into it or whatever. Um, you know, and then I had another serious girlfriend, uh, you know, in my mid to late 20s. Uh, man, it's it's been weird like writing about love because I think people for me, when I write about a person and an interpersonal relationship, while there is like a sense of like, yes, I wrote it maybe about this person and, or at the time I was with that person, but I'd like to think that there can be a sense of detachment where you can let this be a Hallmark card and be about your mom or, you know, your, you know, your neighbor that you really like or whatever the fuck. So I think um, when I explain that to people, they either get it or they don't. I think there's kind of ones and zeros about that, which is fine. Uh, but that's kind of the way that I see it. And so I try not to um, let a lot of that stuff bleed through, but I, I can't help it, dude. Like I cannot help but write about the interpersonal relationships that were occurring at that time, whether it was lovers or friends or family or whatever. So 
yeah, you'll definitely see that in my poetry, you know, um, and people can, can look at it and match up the timelines and be like, Oh, Ben was dating right, this right. person <laughs> right, at that right. time. Is that's probably about them. It's like, Whatever. It's like, if you well, want to be that meticulous, you can and, be. And there's a little Taylor Swift in all of us. I mean, at some point <laughs> you're going to have to write about the relationships that you've experienced and, you know, you know, people have to know that like you're an artist, you're going to, you're going to mine that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, that's different than necessarily doxing them, but you know, right. Um, but yeah, of course there's gotta be some of that. It's funny. Cause it strikes me. I, I, I don't know. I mean, tell me, tell me what you think about this. Does it seem like your life has had self-fulfilling prophecies that to start so early diving into, you know, heavy subject matter, kind of almost begging for the fight and then you got it. And then it's like, yeah. And of course I'm going to downward spiral with this. Like I'm set up. This is how I've kind of been conditioning myself to go down that rabbit hole a little bit and then have another fight, which is the fight to redeem myself and get back on top of it. Like it does seem like it's almost, a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy dude so much so much and it took me forever to you know up until mm, about an hour ago to to realize that you know like that you know i maybe was i like uh you know trying to emulate you know ovid and homer and right. you know the epic of gilgamesh and find my my rise to power and my my downfall and then pick that up and then, right. you know probably yeah yeah man i think we do to a certain extent truly are able to manifest our reality i and i think that's a common I mean, I always say this, I've never been a woman, so I don't know what it's like for women, but I think it's a common male thing. I think, I think guys do that. I think a lot of times the themes you build up early on in life are ones that on some level you want to sort through later on. And you're going to one way or another, find a way to unpack that and, and dive into that. I think that's kind of a working hypothesis. Um, <laughs> when was the last, uh, when was the last poem that you wrote? for stones of the wooded valley how recently had you written that the most recent uh, piece? probably like for i don't even know you said it was a 10 year time like 16 ish be 16 okay oh uh, no you know what when did i release that god damn i don't even remember 19 it's like 17 18 probably okay so at that point did you feel like you had picked yourself up out of the hole did you feel like hey i'm back on track and i'm picking up my life and i'm i've really overcome or did you feel like now I'm still in the ship and I'm still unpacking a lot of stuff in regard to that release in particular uh, in regard to um, yeah let's say let's say the book as a whole do you think it captured work from when you had kind of overcome the little speed bumps in life and were on the downslope yeah 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 I definitely do and I that book in particular has a lot of variety in it. Um, you know, there's stuff as you, as we, you know, just kind of trailing back to what we had talked about before and your reverse engineering, you know, inside imagination, outside imagination, surrealism and dreamlike states and stuff like that um, are just uh, the main inspirations uh, for my writing. So Stones in particular is just kind of a, a nice mashup of things that I unpacked 
in my 20s. Uh, my next book, which is tentatively not titled at the moment, but we're working on it, um, is Strictly War, Strictly the Deployment, Strictly wow. that shit. Wow. So uh, up until this point, I have never – like I've written war poems and I've written stuff that kind of unpacked things here and there. But this is the first Benjamin Fortier talks about war poetry book so it's kind of funny and by funny i mean appropriate and probably good that you haven't kind of you haven't shot your load yet (laughs) you know you kind of kept that until now to kind of you know unpack the the serious shit and the real shit um at this point i want to look at two poems of yours the first one is the first world the worst world I like and I one. just I just want to read it um, for everybody here and then ask you about it. So the poem is sit up, take stock, realize life, barely getting by monotony, tribulation, introspection, desperation. Bank account is full. Bills are paid on time. House is nice and clean. Yet life is full of grime. Cut off, fading fast. Happiness, too abstract. Lethargy, depression, solitude, isolation. Kids are all grown up. The past is far away, searching for a reason to make it through today. First world, worst world, drowning in wealth, no concept of self, morals aligned with the bottom line. How angry are you at the world? Or were you angry at the world then when you wrote that? I don't like to think of myself as angry at the world. I like to think of myself as somebody who sees certain things about the world as they are. Okay. And not uh, to take down the rosy glasses, um, to uh, unpack things. Um, and, you know, I think that I can only call out the first world as I have in that poem because I've, you know, seen the things that I've seen and, you know, lived in the slums basically and stuff like that choice. And, you know, I had awesome medical care at my disposal and I had a doc within arm's reach at all times, most of the time. So, you know, granted while we were living in kind of shitty conditions, it was backed by the first world military. And that's actually something that I unpack in the next book is like I compare myself to, you know, motherfuckers who don't get air support. It's just like, yep, you're on your own, you know, or you're not getting that medevac flight. Like you're just some insurgent fighting somewhere with an AK and maybe two mags in a grenade or something, you know, like. So to I, it, there's a lot of shit that I unpack in the next one, too. So I, I don't consider myself angry at the world. I consider myself very skeptical but also um, not to the point of like, you know, falling down wild rabbit holes, but just kind of, like I said, just kind of seeing things as they are and unpacking it and realizing that there is much more to our lives than our bank accounts and, you know, and stuff like that. But I, I think sort of some of it too, as you explore my poetry, I do have a lot of social commentary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm getting at. It's, it's interesting. 
Um, and it actually touches on something that I've thought of, but I want to bounce it off and see what you think. My, my theory is that I think punditry is overdone, and I think there's a real temptation on the part of veterans to become amateur pundits. And some of them will graduate into being fully mature, fully realized, very expressive and eloquent pundits. But the percentage of veterans that are going to be that, much like the percentage of people that become awesome pundits, is very slim. And I think rather than writing second-rate punditry, a lot of veterans would be better suited doing the best they can to mine their thoughts for artistic content, because it's a better, more devastating way of leveling their critiques. And that's what it seems to me like you do when you become um, topical or let's say you put on your, your critique, you know, uh, you start writing from the point of view of, of, of a critic of the world. Um, and I don't mean that like negatively, but just to critique the world around you. Sure. I feel like you're, you're writing, you're not writing punditry, you're writing artistically, you're writing poetry, but it's capturing what others, in my opinion, um, would render less eloquent and less memorable by trying to craft into second-rate punditry. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. And I think that I, this is the social commentary and stuff like that is a voice that I grew into. And it's a voice that I started to discover because I grew up in a very, with a lot of conservative values uh, in my household and seeing the real world, having a falling out with Catholicism, which was the religious uh, background that I was born into uh, and taking that pretty seriously. And then, you know, experiencing what I experienced overseas started to have a, I started to have a lot of uh, fuck crises, man. I was like, what is happening? So, you know, a lot of that stuff was really just torn down in front of me, you know? So I, you know, in my, I struggled with it at first, but I feel like in my twenties, I kind of had to start to rebuild that shit. And as I did rebuild that shit, I started to find more of a voice that was like, uh, I don't really like that value regardless of who claims it, you know, as a society, if we claim it, I want to, I want to unpack that. I want to unravel that a little bit. You know, why are we doing things this way or that way? You know, as much as I love history, I also love anthropology. I love sociology. I connected with that shit very much growing up. So it's just kind of my way of being an armchair sociologist and doing it through my poetic voice, which you know, I I could sit here and do an essay, but like that's yeah. that's fucking sterile, dude. Yeah. Like, and it's more effective for I mean, sure. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's more effective and it's more um, yeah, it's more interesting. It's more memorable and it and it's also more personal. I don't know about you, but I think if I try to write, and I God knows I have um, tried to write punditry pieces, and I notice it just it becomes a mirror of somebody else because. You're, you have to use the correct words and you have to phrase things the correct way. And there's only so many ways to do that, I think. And, and at a certain point, the, the verbiage becomes repetitive unless you're the first one to pioneer it and everyone else is following in your wake. 
Um, and very few people are is are that those thinkers. So, uh, but whereas this, it allows you a very unique way of delivering your thoughts. I think. Absolutely, and this is the first time that I have ever been accused of punditry. So, <laughs> I, I, mean, <laughs> I will embrace that, brother. I will embrace that shit. Well, it, it's I mean, it is what it is at this point. I think I, to me, I've always just been like. Yeah, you know, I grew up, I listened to punk rock and shit, and they just talked shit about the economy and fucking all that stuff. So it just kind of rubbed off. But yeah, yeah, I mean, everybody is, you know, has the right to their own opinion and things like that. So I was like, this is for me the most eloquent way. And like you said, artistic, eloquent slash it'll it'll slap you if it's if it's written appropriately, you know, right. And also, I mean, to be fair, I think one of the other benefits it has is you might find people that can relate to one part of it, but not another. And that's okay. That yep. they'll take from it what they need because yep. it's not say it's not giving a thesis statement that you have to agree with in order to appreciate the next five paragraphs. You know, there's a lot of things that you can Frankenstein for yourself and figure out what has value and what doesn't. For better, for worse, bro. For yeah. better, for worse, man. Like, you know, like we live in an age where people will just clip out what they want to, you know, brainwash you with. And But yeah, for sure. That is one of the beautiful things about poetry is where you are in your life. It will meet you there. Yeah. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, when is the book coming out? Sometime this year. We don't have a uh, target date at this time. Okay. Uh, but it is being published through Dead Reckoning Collective. Keith is working on it right now. And uh, super excited, man. Very, very That's excited. So cool. I'm trying to, you know, uh, work up a little bit of a some kind of marketing kind of campaign. I, I want to do a, um, uh, a narrative uh, uh, audiobook version of it. Um, you know, maybe do a couple videos and things like that. Cause that's the world that I'm in, yeah. you know, uh, digital media production and stuff is basically kind of what I do on used to do. I did it for about a decade professionally and now I'm shifting gears, but, um, so, you know, that was cool. And to like throw that in front of them and be like, Hey man, like I could do this fucking shit like at home, yeah. you know? Yeah. So dude, I, I, I can't wait. Obviously, um, you know, you can always come back here, uh, to talk about when that comes out. But let's talk about what other big piece of your marketing plan, Um, because this will be this episode will be coming out after we have announced the Savage Wonder Festival. And obviously, if you have any of your pieces that you want to launch for that, you're more than welcome. Or we can use stuff from Stones of the Wooded Valley. Um, But I can't wait to see you there, man. Um, What? What do you think you want to use for that? Because Ben, Ben doesn't know who he's going to be partnered with yet, and I'm still thinking through what that might look like. But mm-hmm. I'm excited because your poetry is so unique to find the right person that is going to have the appropriate subject matter that to ricochet off of. And I, I, I want to see how that's going to play out. So where are you at right now? What if you had to pick? What kind of stuff would you want to launch and and do as spoken word? Thanks, man. Well, yeah, well, I was first, I want to say thank you. I appreciate you for uh, your invitation. Uh, very much looking forward to it. I am very humbled. Uh, this is the kind of thing that I really enjoy doing. Uh, you know, obviously, COVID kind of put a damper on live events, but I love doing spoken word, dude. And um, I 
I don't really consider myself, um, you know, an actor of any sort, but I really try to make sure that, you know, uh, spoken word isn't just, you know, so like, you know, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to be, I'm going to be fucking into it. So, um, what am I going to read? I I mean, dude, at this point, I'm still kind of like figuring out like my brand. Um, I don't want to be known as like, this very well could be the only war poetry book I do, you know, about my personal experience. So, you know, I'm hungry for other shit, man. Like I'm hungry for more social commentary. I'm hungry for more dream analysis. I'm hungry for, you know, maybe I could just do like a, you know, just like a, like a segments of wisdom and, you know, like shit that's going to uplift you, stuff like that. Like, I don't want to like lock myself away because I'm hungry for all that stuff. So, you know, I think it's going to, what I choose is going to depend on you, my friend. I think it's going to depend on, (laughs) you better tell me who you get. So that way I can be like, all right, well, you you kind of know my, my, I, I know I, a little bit of my stuff now. So. I do, I do, and and I I I like to give you the right of first refusal. Um, okay. Because because once I step in, um, then I start getting wedded to stuff. But I, uh, yeah, I um, there's somebody. I'm trying to think if it's worth it or wise for me to even say this on air. But there is somebody I'm thinking of. I don't know if she's written poetry, but she is. But sensibility wise. Uh, you guys, I think both have very similar vibes and I got to see what that looks like. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, this is, it's giving me some food for thought, but listen, I'm, I'm super stoked for it. Cause I, I think, I think your stuff, it, you know, it's funny cause um, and I'll, I'll dime you out a little bit. Ben just sent me um, some stuff for the literary blog that I think will have published by the time this episode came out. So we'll link to it in the show notes if it has, but um your stuff is uh, it always needs context because it's so jarring in a very good way. It's arresting stuff, but it's the kind of thing that I feel like it's like slapping somebody upside the head. And they're like, hold on. I just want to yeah. know what hit me. Just right. tell me what hit me. Something hit me. I just don't even know what the hell it was. And, yeah. um, and the one you just sent me is fucking, oh my God, that was, that was, Maybe I'm getting way too middle-aged, but that was like almost too much for me. I was like, oh, I need, I need to know what the hell's going on here. Dude. It was, it was, it's fucking intense, but that's a gift, man. I mean, people forget, you know, in the, in the old commedia system, you know, I mean, uh, fear is one of those primal emotions and, and you have a way of writing that writing shit that makes you afraid in a very unique and powerful way. And that is a scary gift, but, um, if anybody has to have it, I'm glad you do. Thanks, dude. I mean, that's another thing. Like the horror, like writing. I'm. I, I hate to admit this, but like I was just basically recently only sat down and did H.P. Lovecraft, you know, for the first time, and was like fucking blown away, dude. Like, you know, obviously I grew up with Edgar Allan Poe and stuff like that. Yeah. So horror has been always on the back burner for me, and you know. Um, conversations like this affirm to me. So I appreciate you uh, very much for saying this, that, you know, 
All right. I am capable of instilling a wide range of emotions in my reader. So it, you know, why put myself in, you know, uh, in a bucket, you know, one of my, one of my homies. So in preparation for your show, I wrote down about 40 names that I wanted to shout out, but I don't think we're going to, because we're probably, we're getting about towards the end of the show. So sorry to all you people, except for Nick, F. Stastu. I apologize for um, uh, butchering your your last name, brother. But Nick is one of the people that I, you know, I've just been rubbing elbows with in in the IG veteran community. And um, he's a local guy and he writes horror. And his his IG handle is um, Cross Massachusetts. He's a published author, um, you know, but... You know, like, it's it's cool because I never considered myself a horror writer. And then, you know, I write shit like that. And I'm like, well, God damn, like, where the, where did this come from, yeah, man? Like, yeah. but, I, but I was so inspired by that guy's story. That is what that I took that story and I digested it. And that's what came out. Hey, sometimes you just follow the spirit. You follow the impulse and there it goes. Yeah. Yep. Um, dude, I got to go pick up my kid. This has been incredibly fascinating and fulfilling and it is sort of if you read ben's poetry and or his writing in general i think you start to appreciate that you want to know the guy behind the writing because the writing just begs that desire i think and to sit down and actually be able to talk with you for about two hours is um is great man and a real privilege Dude, I appreciate your time so much. Uh, it's fucking. It was a real honor to be on the show. I've been a big fan, you know, since I three weeks ago that I discovered it. So now you, you, you uh, I'm, I'm very happy to uh, get to know you and to rub elbows with you. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, our, our collaborations in the future, man. That was the Savage Wonder of Benjamin Fortier. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. As Ben and I talked about in the episode, you can see Ben live in person at the Savage Wonder Festival of Veterans in the Arts on May 29th, 2022, the day before Memorial Day in beautiful upstate Chester, New York, at the Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center. Tickets, information, all that is available at savagewonder.com. Again, that's savagewonder.com, all one word, savagewonder.com. As far as VetRep goes, you can find out about all of our lines of effort. We'll even have links to everything at Savage Wonder. So if you get hit on the head with a heavy object in the next few minutes and can't remember anything else, go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org, where you can find out about this podcast. You can find out about our literary blog, our Write Loud events on Instagram Live, our 2022 staged reading season, which runs from April 2nd to mid-December on just about every Saturday of 2022 that is remaining. And then, of course, we'll have links to the Savage Wonder Festival there as well. So check all of that out at vetrep.org. I don't think I have anything else to plug for you guys. If you're on iTunes, you know, we always ask, please give us a five-star review. Um, You can say whatever you want to us, questions, comments, snide remarks. But if you could leave five stars in the review when you post it, that would be deeply appreciated. You can always follow us, Facebook, at Veterans Repertory Theater. I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. I'll spell it for you here. It's R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, and theater is E-R, not R-E, because we're Americans. 
So on Facebook, at Veterans Repertory Theater. But if you're on Twitter or if you're on Instagram, at VetRep Theater. And that should make it super easy for you because I don't need to spell repertory. So at VetRep Theater on Instagram or Twitter. If you're a veteran or an immediate family member of a veteran and you want to submit your work to VetRep or to our literary blog, go to VetRep.org and go to the submissions tab. You can check out all the criteria of who you need to be to submit to us and what a submission entails and where it would go and what are the potential second and third order effects of submitting your work to us. We would love to read it if you are one of the folks that that applies to. Okay, that's it, guys. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.